Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. October 20th, 2013, episode 44, where good ideas come from. Hi, one and all, this is Kevin England here wishing you well. If you are a first-time listener, welcome to the podcast, and if you are a loyal listener or someone who's in between, welcome back. I'm all fired up and ready to go as we have a mishmash of ideas for you this time around, and that is central to the theme, where good ideas come from. I find at times that the smallest things set me off on a journey of discovery, and in this case, two catalysts have my most recent attention. One such came by way of a B-Source forum, and the other from a recent quest to learn about under-supering to produce more honey per hive. In this episode, we'll go on a discovery of items that mostly stem from things that I come across or have an idea about, and in the ever-learning quest to know more, find myself on a journey that brings me back to you and this episode. So let's get to it. In this episode, a honey tunnel, what it is, and where the idea originated from. Does honey help allergies? It is a question that needs to be presented from all sides. Foraging aided by electrical patterns left by bees. And in our roundtable, we'll have a tip for warming supers, a bit of an editorial on plastic frames, and share an idea for someone's Hive Eco Batteries. I have a nice mug of tea with honey at my side and it's time to dive in. Let's kick off with a short Hive Report. Time for our local Hive Report. Not a lot to report this time around. The hives are pretty much buttoned up or not going in them. It was cool today, probably 50-55 degrees. I am happy to report that I was out in the bee yard today uh, cleaning up some trees, trying to make a little more space, really just trying to opening up the area for more hives in the spring. I have a lot of work to do to clear some underbrush and some trees that have fallen, but uh, everything looks good. And this is the time of the year when all of the canopy underneath that is growing on the ground under the trees that are alongside and adjacent to the apiary are starting to die back, so it's a little cleaner a little easier to clean up things, but uh, Hive 1, 2, and 3 all look good. They're pretty heavy. The bees were lightly foraging today. Can't say there was a ton of activity. Hive number 4, the Swarm Hive, if you listened in the last episode, is mediocre at best. Still not very happy, happy with uh, its situation. It's not very heavy. I went to a bee show yesterday, which I'll talk about in the roundtable, and purchased a feeder. I have feeders on the other three, but I'm not feeding them. I wanted to have a fourth feeder, but um, I haven't fed this hive, and I don't know that I will. Anyway, from a local hive report, that's really about it. The hives look uh, like they're in good shape going into winter. We reset them. If you're interested in the fall routine, you can listen to the last episode, episode number 43, where we talked about how we arrange things for fall. And um, right now, things are looking good. It's going to get cold next week, as they had predicted. Uh, I think they said Wednesday the drop in temperature is going to come, and 
We had an overnight temperature of 35 degrees this week, which means we're just about to that first frost. If you are working with your bees, trying to feed them that last little bit, two tips for you, don't overfeed and fill in the brood chamber to the point where you're shutting the queen down. And number two, if you're feeding from the top, it's getting too cold to the point where it does not warm up during the day. The bees are not going to take in cold, and they're not going to also be able to ripen that honey in time for capping off. They're just about at the end of their function. Uh, Maybe we'll get some warm days here through October and November. It's been the pattern of late in the last couple years, but, uh, you know, be judicious about what you're feeding and how you're feeding at this time of year. So local hive report pretty quick. And it'll go this way from now on as we're not doing a lot of digging in our hives. I think we're in good shape going into winter. And it's time to start considering moving the internal work together here. Start painting boxes and stuff like that. So um, that's it for local hive report. All done. Four hives on the property and everything looks pretty good. Segment number one, I think this is one of the earliest uh, time frames we've ever gotten into our first feature. That's good. This one I'm going to call Tunnel of Love. I stumbled upon an interesting forum post on the website bsource.com this week. A person with the ID Happy Being, being being spelled B-E-E-I-N-G, passed along something that he'd read in a passage from the 1810 Langstroth edition of The Hive and the Honeybee. It concerned manipulating the hive environments to make a passage horizontally between the combs just prior to winter so that the bees would have easy access to the honey that awaited them on the outside frames. The poster's comment asked if anyone has ever tried this and that it sounded brilliant. I have to agree, what an interesting concept. A Kevin moment here. I listened to an audiobook on the hive and the honeybee one time. Well, I should say I tried to listen to it. The narrator was not the most lively guy, and I found myself struggling to get through it. I made it most of the way through, but apparently I didn't get to this part. Maybe I should take a shot at recording a version of that. Okay, end of Kevin moment. (laughs) To that end, after reading this post, I wanted to know more. There was a snippet from the book, and I wanted to read the passages before and after to understand the context. Now, I have two copies of The Hive and the Honey Bee in print. There are, for a point of order, numerous revisions, and they're all not the same. So this reference came from the 1810 to 1895 edition, And that isn't the one that I have. I do happen to know that that version of the book is now in the public domain and graciously available on the web from the Cornell University website. So I went and dug the book up, and I found the passage and the other context that I was looking for. And let me read the primary passage from which the source was quoted. Quote, As some bees which cluster on the outside combs are often unable to join the others in cold weather, it would be well to have holes or winter passages through the combs such as will allow them to pass readily, 
in cold weather from one to another. But if these holes are made before they feel the need for them, they will frequently close them. It is suggested that small tubes made of elder, the pith of which has been removed, would make permanent winter passages, if inserted in the comb at any time." So what prompted Langstroth to make this observation? There was an adjacent passage that had this to offer, quote, On a cold November day, Mr. Langstroth found bees in a hive without any winter passages, separated from the main cluster, and so chilled as not to be able to move, while, with the thermometer many degrees below zero, he repeatedly noticed in other hives at one of the holes made in the comb a cluster varying in size ready to rush out at the slightest jar of the hive. End quote. So just a comment about how I read that. Everywhere I paused there was a comma, so I'm assuming there snippets of and that's why I stopped there it was kind of awkward the way it was read but that's the way the book is written and that's the way they wrote things in those times if you've ever read those books they're very um, string of thoughts put together pieces so anyway it's fascinating to think that maybe a hole in the comb could spell the difference between survival and starvation for the hive I agree with the original post very interesting stuff So it brings me to my next thought. We beekeepers keep inspecting the comb and breaking things up. Specifically, we're destroying the bridge comb that leads to the passageways horizontally. If you think about some outside place and you're trying to get somewhere and all the suddens that go, all the sidewalks that go from here to there are unavailable, what kind of setback would that be to you? Think about walking around in a park or whatever where you're heading to one place, you have a path in front of you, and all the way sudden it stops. There's no place to get to the path which you could see up front of you. I think that would drive you nuts, but think about what the bees encounter every time we break that bridge comb. What kind of setback must that be for them? So I think about the ideas and the concepts of breaking out that brood chamber, right? And there are people, I'll go back to the one that I heard first, Oscar Perone, but I'm sure he's not the first, because I've read it in Langstroth's books also. But he's one of the people right now specifying that thou shall not mess with the brood chamber. Set it up, leave it be, never touch it, only put honey supers on and take it up and take it off. As new beekeepers, we like to go in there and see what's what. As medium novice beekeepers, even those more experienced, we're trying to do inspections and check. I hear more and more often people espousing the idea that thou shall never go in. And when you think about things like this, this idea, it does lend credence to we're breaking the bridge comb. Now, I don't know if you could take some sort of horizontal tube and put it across all of the hive but that is an interesting concept that if you had a hole just in the way it was described as an inch and a half down from the top bar 
the bees could travel laterally out, get the honey, and bring it in. And it seems to me that when they're from in that zone between the top bar and that bottom edge bar on a frame, in between the honey, and they're keeping all that stuff warm, and it's holding the warmth with the liquids and whatever that's in there, as soon as they have to go up and over the top bar, it's in no man's land. It's like crossing out of the window into the outside. So you have to wonder if this hole through the bottom makes, or through the comb itself to get to the outside makes any sense. Very interesting idea. Am I going to take action and go plug holes in my in my hives? No, not right now. But when you think about it, maybe next year, it's an interesting experiment. When you get to this period of time, and I'm done going in my hives this year, so that's why I'm really done. But maybe you aren't, depending on where you are. If you're a little further southern than, than New Jersey, you might have this opportunity. The key to it, what Langstroth said, is you have to do it when it's not so warm that they'll patch the hole, but not so cold that they'll, you know, well, actually just not so warm so that they won't patch the hole if they leave it open. I guess um, I guess I'll leave it to you, the listener. If you have the opportunity to do this and you try it and you think it's successful and you have some evidence or whatever, send us a note. Let us know. And I will keep this in the back of my mind for next fall and possibly try this experiment. It's. I wish I could have come across this two weeks ago. I might have tried this in one of the hives. But anyway, uh, interesting idea. And the, and the idea comes from Langstroth's Hive and the Honey Bee. And when I start flipping through that book and reading, and I have, I'm going to read it again just because of this, you start to find other ideas and other insights that they knew and it just amazes me what they knew and we've forgotten so I have to wonder if these people who had done huge amounts of research back then and also uh, went to see Tom Seeley this weekend and I know he gave us a great presentation but he only touched on the surface of the things that he had experienced and you can go back and read his papers and get the the deep intellectual insights of the things that he's learned um boy there's a lot of ideas out there that have already been conquered and we're discovering them like they're brand new and we could already cut to the chase so anyway i'm rambling here i'll stop but uh neat idea and uh something to consider maybe for fall management We're going to roll into segment number two. Does honey help allergies? The counterpoint. If you ask a beekeeper about the benefits of honey and like a peacock, they'll espouse its virtues. I can guarantee it. And guilty as charged. Somewhere in the expression of positive attributes, the point about it being a great tool in preventing allergies will be part of the recount. I detest it, Kevin Moment. I detest it when the Cheerios commercials tells me in the morning that it will lower my cholesterol. And I'm happy to say I just had my cholesterol checked and it's in good shape and I don't eat Cheerios that much. So, public service announcement, have you had yours checked lately? (laughs) So why doesn't anyone on TV tell me that natural honey will cure allergies? Why is it that it's not printed on every label? Fact is, I know the answer already. 
Given that I work for a pharma company, and no, I'm not a scientist, I'm an IT guy, but that doesn't stop me from being exposed somewhat to the inner workings of many things pharma. You cannot claim things that cannot be proven, and if there was a real link to preventing allergies, pharma would have commercialized it in some way a long time ago. So in the case of finding a counterpoint to the ever-present health claims of honey, I did what any other red-blooded U.S. citizen would do. I went to WebMD. (laughs) So WebMD is on the Internet, so it must be true. Actually, let me not disparage the resource. People make fun of Wikipedia, and it's actually not funny to make light of something like that. WebMD is a valuable resource, and I've always considered it a reasonable resource for a first pass on insights on topics. I'm a little off on a little tangent. Where was I? Oh, yeah, allergies. <laughs> the short of it is that most people who have allergies are allergic to wind-borne allergens. The allergens come in the form of ragweed, pollen from grass, and not the kind carried by bees back to the hive. It is true that pollen being brought back to the hive can make its way into the honey, but even if it were the airborne type that you're allergic to, there's bad news there too. WebMD indicates that the pollen ingested as a component of the honey is broken down by your stomach acids and doesn't trigger an immune response in the way you want it to. Pills taken for allergies are coated so that they get far enough into the digestive tract to get their intended use. Wah, 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 wah. (laughs) This is so depressing for me, I have to tell you. One more downer on a theory about honey. If you eat some raw honey and you notice a little tingle in your throat, to me that's always been explained as a minor local reaction. If you get that burn, and I almost do, one might wonder, is that the local reaction to the pollen in the honey? The bad news is, honey has an acidity of about 3.4 to 6.1, depending on the floral sources the bees are visiting. A neutral level is a value of 7, and a lemon, for contrast, is 2.2 value. So 1 is acidic on the scale, and 14 is the other extreme of non-acidic or base. So when you think about it, 7 is the middle, and the burn is most likely explained as a byproduct of the acidity and not a reaction to the trace amounts of pollen in the honey. It's not that this rules out allergic reactions, but it's more plausible that the acidity in the honey is causing the sensation. Okay, now I am going to contradict WebMD with my personal anecdote. My son Danny has always had allergies. When he was younger, he was miserable. He would play soccer and be totally out of breath right away because he couldn't breathe. Our soccer fields sit in and amongst several fields just full of natural growth. That all changed in 2009 after our first honey harvest. He was on a fresh honey kick when that first spring came to pass and he was going out to play soccer. From that point forward, he was allergy free. 
Now, some say you could grow out of these things, and I might buy that. But he left for school in New York, and when he got there, he got his seasonal allergies again. He was far enough away and in a different place that our honey did not make an impact. Being the father that I am, beekeeper, I binged, not Google. Google's evil. That's a personal opinion, not a personal claim. <laughs> I binged around the area and found that he has a local supplier literally right around the block. And I've encouraged him to recon the situation. He's right next to Genesee Park, and on the outer fringes of the park is a beekeeper who sells natural wares. So next time someone asks you about the mystical powers of honey for allergies, smile and nod, and then tell them how good it tastes. There are other well-known benefits to eating local raw honey besides taste, and like anything else, honey in moderation is a very good thing. I'm not going to go as far as saying honey does not help you for allergies, but I would be careful in overstating this. If you want more information on the topic, we'll provide a link in our show notes to where 36 people were tested for allergy relief from honey in a study from 2002 via the University of Connecticut. They concluded in that study there was no release from the symptoms after ingesting local raw unfiltered honey. So that's kind of like the one scientific evidence that can help you understand this phenomena. Now, before you send me hate mail, please don't. <laughs> I'm not trying to be a downer. I'm just trying to, trying to provide a counterpoint on this. I've had discussions with people about this topic and they get really upset when you suggest that this is not true. I want to come from a place where I know that someone of high ranking warned someone standing next to me when they were going on about how allergies were uh, totally wiped out by this, uh, that, that it wasn't, they should do their homework and be very careful about making false claims for one cannot prove. And that's what led me to go look this up. I had to know the answer for myself. So anyway, now you know, and you can take that information and do what you wish with it. Segment number three, all charged up. I've had this on the pile to discuss for a bit, and I'm glad I got around to it because it's a cool factoid about bees. There was a feature in the July-August edition of Popular Mechanics magazine about how bees communicate with each other on source targets. Of course, it's understood that bees see a flower's color, shape, and they have scent, and they use these clues to find the best forage. But what if the target is harvested already? Then it would be a waste of resource to visit that flower. Bees are far too industrious and adept to let that happen. So what mechanism have they devised to solve the problem? Scientists from the University at Bristol in England have concluded that they use an invisible clue to derive the answer. Flowers have a negative charge, 
and it has been determined that when a bee visits the flower, they have an electrical force from the static bristles of their body hair. The visit temporarily changes the flower's charge and leaves a signature that they believe oncoming bees can detect, and it results in the bee passing it up. They concluded the finding by electrically charging artificial flowers and setting a nectar target. Bees learned to recognize the pattern as a resource, and when it was on display, they would visit and reap the bounty. When it was turned off, the electricity, they would pass it up. They also set up different charge patterns, negative in the middle and positive on the outside in one case, and contrasted it against a flower that was all positive. Bees learned which was good and avoided the voltage patterns that were perceived as not productive. So how about that? They're flying in. They see flowers. They're flying from bright color to bright color. They're checking the scents. And they look down upon a flower and they can read the electrical charge of the flower and determine if somebody's already been there. That's efficiency and that is cool stuff. For segment number four, I wanted to circle back to episode number 43 and some of the commentary about feeding sugar versus giving back or keeping honey on the hive. While paging through the hive and the honeybee mentioned just a few moments ago, I found this little snippet from Langstroth, and it almost is word-for-word vindication of the concept that was discussed almost uh, too much in last episode. Here's a quote. The prudent apiarist will regard the feeding of the bees. The little given by way of encouragement except as an evil to be submitted to only when it cannot be avoided and will much prefer that they should obtain their supplies in the manner so beautifully described by him whose intimidable writings furnish us on almost every subject with the happiest illustrations. What they're talking about there is an evil to be submitted to only when, in other words, don't feed them sugar. (laughs) The, The passage went on to say that sugar is not a good substitute for honey for the various reasons we went through in the last episode. It went on further to say, to avoid the accidents caused by poor honey, some apiarists have suggested that all the honey might be extracted every fall and sugar syrup fed in its place. At first glance, this course seems profitable, but when the difference between the price of comb honey and the cost of sugar syrup is considered, but when we take into account the trouble of feeding and the poor results obtained in wintering bees, we see much labor for small profit. Again, his point is that you're feeding sugar solution, and I guess back in the day they were using and also had problems with unripened honey or using honeydew, fruit juices, cheaper things to create these solutions instead of natural honey stores. And in essence, they were saying, if you're going to feed sugar, this is the quote, when sugar syrup is needed, none but the best sugar should be used. 
In conclusion, it said, Having ascertained that the bees winter better on spring or light-colored honey, we no longer extract from the brood chamber, avoiding the annoyance and the extra labor of feeding. Our experience has convinced us that, unless the spring crop has failed or the food is decidedly bad, it is cheaper to winter bees on natural stores. My summation of this is what's old is new <laughs> again. <laughs> Good for Langstroth, though. They made that epiphany, and, and we are able to carry it forward from the insights from the last last episode. So uh, very interesting. That was on page 36 of that 1810. Nope, sorry. Page 336 of the 1810 edition, if you wanted to go back and read a little bit about what he was talking about there. We're done with our four feature segments, just about to run into Roundtable, but wanted to take a pause here and provide some contact information. It should be noted that everything about this show and all the previous shows are documented at our website, www.bkcorner.org. You can go back and look at past episodes and read the timelines for when certain topics are covered. One of the things that came to me recently is I should really go back through all of the previous episodes and build an index of the topics. It's good that I actually specified from this time to that time as this segment and the feature was covered, but I don't know that I have one index. Maybe a listener would be kind enough to go through and do that for me. That seems like a time-intensive task. Or maybe this winter I'll just start hacking at episodes and see if I can put that together myself. But anyway, uh, all information about each of our episodes, plus a couple bonus recordings out there of various beekeeper um, speakers, are available www.bkcorner.org. Also purchase bkcorner.com, so you could use that going forward. We have a Facebook page, paste uh, different links, videos, things that we find interesting, sometimes more often than not. Been on a roll lately and had a couple things in there. Facebook.com slash Beekeepers Corner. You could also check out the Northwest New Jersey Beekeepers Association YouTube page, youtube.com slash NWNJBA. I manage that and post most of what is the video version of Beekeeper's Corner over there. Uh, just posted some hive inspections for our mentoring hives. Some neat insights on that, so you can go take a look at that. And then lo and behold, we have a phone number, but um, I've somehow lost the sticky tag, and it's only used for the podcast, and I don't remember what it is. So I guess I'm going to have to figure that out <laughs> and come back to it. So one other thing that I could ask of you listeners... I'd love to have you come visit our Facebook page and just jot a note off of uh, your thoughts and ideas of future topics for the episodes and uh, where you're coming from and anything you have going on. Uh, start a little dialogue there. That would be great. And I'd like to hear from the listeners a little more. I don't get much feedback on that. Although I know uh, just recently I was looking at the statistics and I, I've never been a big fan or, or had a need to do this but pleasantly surprised that the last episode was 
I had 900 downloads in the first week, which was really kind of surprising to me. Didn't think that many people were out there paying attention, but uh, and someone pointed out to me that we were one of the top rankings on Reddit, which I didn't even know what it was. So um, it's funny I'm in IT and I don't follow all these things and don't fuss over them. But anyway, the the last thing that I'll ask is in iTunes, if you're listening to us via that means, if you want to leave us a comment, that really helps the show uh, get exposure as people don't know about us. And putting that in helps raise our podcast over some of the other ones. Um, there's ones that are in iTunes, and this this is a bit of a bother to me. They haven't been producing for a long time, yet they received so many interests in the time that they were there that they rank above ours in the other podcasts that are actively being created. So it's helpful if you go in and leave comments uh, on the on iTunes and get ours uh, bubbling up to the top so more people can discover us. Anyway, that being done, let's move to roundtable number one. I want to talk about something called warming up the supers. On recommendation from Gary Fawcett from the Kiwi Mana podcast, I purchased a copy of a book that provides personal insights about getting the largest honey yield from the hive. Upon cracking the cover, I leafed through and read snippets of the pages within and I could tell already that this will be a cover to cover book for it has a lot of juicy insights the kind of things that you can learn from someone who's kept bees over a period of time and shortcuts your learnings I received the book this past Friday and I'm recording this here on a Sunday and I haven't had time to delve in but I'll share on some of the morsels that it came upon while I was just flipping through the pages So the author went through the procedures of getting that first inspection of the season. And the thing that I glossed over said something about listening for the buzz of the hive at 1 p.m. and such practices. From what I gleaned, they were out listening to the hives in anticipation of when it's literally ramping up to burst out and go do foraging. Sounds odd to me that you'd be out there at 1 in the morning, but who am I to say? So where was the nugget in this? (laughs) Let me get to that. Maybe this is painful obvious, but it's common sense, and common sense that I don't have until now. The tip was to heat the honey super before putting it on top of the colony. So for all you folks who are over in the other side of the world and getting to spring right now, pay attention. Yeah, some of these things are very simple. Think about it. If you pull a super from your garage or your shed or someplace where you had it covered and you put it on a warm hive, it would be like putting something from the refrigerator on top of the hive. The comb would be cold in the box compared to the rest of the hives and the bees would have to let it warm up or warm it up in some sort of way which is going to expend energy and time and they're not going to get to work which is what you really want. So the suggested practice is to warm it by putting it in the sun or putting it on top of the hive or some other means. Bring it in the house, let it warm to room temperature, and then go put it out on your hive. I'd like to think of it as putting a warm, snuggly blanket on top for the bees. (laughs) So simply put, this is so smart. Something that me, dumb Kevin, never contemplated. So I'll be getting to the book over time, and I'll share any other nuggets of insights. 
The book is The Art and Adventure of Beekeeping by Orman Abbey. It's found on Amazon. That's where I got it. The Art and, it's an ampersand, Adventure of Beekeeping. And a special thank you to Gary Fawcett, and uh, I believe maybe even one of his guests recommended this not so long ago. And um, I believe I heard about this book. What it's claimed to fame about is how to generate the most honey for your hive. And it has this really strange diagram, which I'm going to have to get to, about how to under-super and the cadence of that, even going up to nine different boxes. You put one box under, and then you put one up, and then you put one under, and it was really fascinating. You have to see the picture to understand it. But... Um, Sounds very similar to these Tower Hive suggestions that we're hearing. It may even be the book that those folks were looking at. So, uh, very interesting book. We'll be getting to that. The Art and Adventure of Beekeeping. Roundtable number two, Plastic Frames. I want so much to like plastic frames. For convenience, they couldn't make anything easier. And I could see the appeal for new and experienced beekeepers alike. That being said, I don't see a use for them. We've had a handful of them in our hives. They came by way of purchased nukes, and the nukes had them inside. The way I see it, these frames are a 50-50 proposition, and that's not good enough. In my estimation, honeycomb is your number one resource, and whenever there's a prospect that bees won't build them out, it's just not acceptable. Another thing that I've observed is that after time, no matter what you do, they won't work on plastic. Before anyone considers writing me messages, let me explain that one. If a colony starts working on plastic, but the nectar flow runs out before it's fully drawn, you're toast. I've rarely observed a colony that will go back after the fact and fill in that frame. In contrast, I've seen them finish out a foundation-based frame. Now, I've scraped old comb off of plastic frame, and the theory is if you leave some coating of starter wax, it will entice the bees to build it back out. Nope, I haven't had any luck with that. I've seen videos on the web that say you can clean them off and coat them with fresh wax. Yeah, okay. In my estimation, I don't I don't think I know of any beekeepers that are taking the time to do that type of activity. It just seems too labor intensive. You might as well just put a regular foundation in. So, let me not hate fully on plastic. There are times when it works. New beekeepers are actually fortunate for most of them start in the spring when there is a nectar flow and bees will build out comb on just about anything. Yes, I've seen bees build out on cardboard during a flow. So one word of wisdom is that you want to avoid putting wax and plastic next to each other. The bees will build out the wax foundation and increase its thickness to extend into the plastic face that sits alongside of it instead of building the combs evenly on the wax and the plastic. Now bees don't always read the books and they also don't listen to Kevin so sometimes they build everything out perfectly but I can't tell you how many times I've seen the foundation frame built out all the way to bee space and the plastic one is empty. 
So what's plastic foundation good for? You know, maybe you can donate it to an elementary school and they could do those kindergartner kind of rubbings on them. Enough said. <laughs> Roundtable number three, Hive Eco Batteries. As a former sign painter and wannabe graphic artist, I have a design feed set up in one of my phone apps and I find myself occasionally reading articles on graphic arts and design. One of the feeds had a link to an older blog about rethinking the design of batteries. Consider a double A battery. It's round and I'm sure that each and every one of us has encountered the prospect of watching one roll off the table and onto the floor. Kevin Moment, I want you to recognize that I'm showing great constraint and not singing about a meatball rolling out the door. <laughs> Kevin Moment, over back to our regularly scheduled program. The design of these batteries has a hexagonal shape. They don't roll away and they stack so nicely which could result in less packaging. There's also a call out about the space savings that would eliminate all this shipping that you need because batteries in circles leave all this excess space in between. It's amazing when you look at this eco battery suggestion that the trucks needed would be halved or less just by simply changing the exterior design of a battery. Now the UG side is that a simple suggestion is made, but one immediate observation for me would be, would these things fit in the same circle of all the devices we own already? If not, all the devices would have to be changed to accommodate, and these couldn't be used for anything in your home that you have right now. Is it a good idea? Absolutely. Is it going to happen? Don't know, but uh, I like the idea, and I think you should take a look at it. We'll provide a link in our show notes for it, and uh, it is. It is really creative thinking. Roundtable number four. I had the opportunity to see Dr. Tom Seeley yesterday. He comes from Cornell University in New York. I know about him, and I also saw him at Eastern Apiculture Society. I went to a couple of the uh, items that he did, including, which I think I've mentioned before here, the Beeline presentation. So he did two segments or two presentations. The morning session was on honeybee democracy, which he's well known from, and the second segment is also tied to a book that he wrote called Wisdom of the Hive. It's very fascinating not only to hear him recount the experiments that he did for honeybee democracy, and if you're not familiar with that, it is a book that every beekeeper should take a look at. Dr. Seeley worked on the experimentation that explains how a hive swarms and how they come to consensus for picking a new location, among other things. It should be noted, and subsequently while I was sitting in the room, I slid over to Google Scholar, sorry I didn't bing this one, and took a look at uh, some of his papers, and there's a lot of research papers out there that he's done on various topics. It always fascinates me when you see a speaker like this making their presentation, that they're giving you the cliff notes to what they came up with, 
and there's a lot more insights documented in the case of Dr. Seeley in the studies that he's participated in, and specifically on these two topics, honeybee democracy and how bees operate inside the hive. So I took a number of notes, and I'll probably have to go flush those through and bring them back to the podcast, but uh, I had the fortune of asking a question, which I got a great answer on, and I'll share that with you. One of the questions I asked him is, how do you know, or do you know, that when it's time for the swarm to leave, who sounds the alarm and how is it done? And what he said was, they did figure that out. The scout bees go in and start buzzing on the hive, making an audible sound, and sounding the alarm, and just keep passing that on to everybody, and then they all leave at once and everybody follows the alarm. And they make the sound as they leap off, and then everybody follows, and then they swing back and fly through and continue to stay with the cluster until it flies to its location. I'm doing the description of the answer from memory. I took good notes on it. I probably didn't do it really well, so I'll come back with the particular because he explained the buzzing-type sound that they made. But, you know, he went through a lot of the signals of the hive that you don't necessarily hear, but you might see, including the waggle dance, uh, a different dance where the bees just shake other bees. I don't know if you'd call that a dance. It was more like a signal. He talked about the stop signal, which we've discussed here on the podcast, and uh, a couple other items. Again, I guess uh, late at night I'm not doing a great job at relaying the details. I have to go look at my notes to get it proper. But uh, if you ever have the opportunity to speak or see Tom Seeley, you should go do it. Um, Just one of those people that's a pioneer. You think about Langstroth in the book that I just mentioned. Um, Carl von Frisch was a person. He was talking about the science that Mr. von Frisch brought to the understanding of beekeeping. At some day, as we look back, Tom Seeley would be one of those pioneers. The work that he did on the island off of Massachusetts to isolate the bees so that he could study them with his undergraduate students. And the way that he did it, which most fascinating, is really about how they solved the problems. So they were looking at the waggle dance when the bees returned and discovered other phenomena inside the hive for which they built a hypothesis and then went and tested it. Again, I'll I'll cover this in a little more detail, but um, what's most fascinating is not so much learning about how the bees operate, but how they came to find out that. And that's really what you're going to get if you read The Honey Bee Democracy. They'll explain how they did the experiments, how they set up the bee boxes, how they counted the bees, and yes, They literally tagged every bee in the hive and watch them go through and count the numbers that arrives on the landing board. And they had graduate students helping doing all this counting and observing, filming, recording, collating, and all that stuff. So um, pretty neat experience with Tom Seeley yesterday. And again, if you have the chance, uh, go look up his research, buy his books, and uh, study up on that because... It will give you insight like what you get here from the podcast, and dare I say, 10 times better. But uh, uh, really excited about that and had a good time. And thanks to the New Jersey Beekeepers Association for hosting them. The Central Jersey branch was the organization that uh, 
brought it in and uh, set up the meeting. They ran a great meeting, a lot of different topics brought up, including Dr. Seeley. They had a person speaking about mosquito control in New Jersey. And uh, there was a roundtable session for a bunch of people who are knowledgeable beekeepers just answering questions from an audience. And they had two vendors or three vendors on um, on prem, and and it was uh, a very good meal they served too. So all the components of a good meeting come together. New Jersey Beekeepers Association, I would say, they do a uh, fabulous job for their members. It's a shame that more members don't take part in what the state has to offer for some of these meetings over the last. A uh, number of years we got to see Jennifer Berry and Randy Oliver and Tom Seeley and and uh, others. So, um, you know, that's a, another word for you is if you have the opportunity to go see some of these speakers locally, it's worth the ride. If anything, you could stand out, and I've mentioned this on previous episodes, stand out in the lobby and, and have your lunch and possibly sit with these people and ask them questions it's just an exciting uh, opportunity and shouldn't pass it up so um, listen for some more on Tom Seeley we'll get that to you in the next episode so my goal for this episode was to keep it shorter than an hour it seems that we've been running long lately Uh, I have some more research things to bring in the next episode or two but um, at this point I just want to close this out I wanted to give a shout out to Gary Fawcett and uh, Margaret, I've talked about them before, but had a chance to talk to Gary recently via Skype. We were just chatting. He's from New Zealand and runs his own podcast. It's kiwimana.co.nz, or NZ as they say. Uh, Gary's really progressive, doing a lot of work over there, doing a good job, and um, bringing a lot of information both through his blog and his uh, podcast, and he's He's catching up to me on episodes, so (laughs) he's motivating me to keep going here. Um, I also want to say thanks to some of the listeners who have written in recently. One listener, Mike Vines, sent a message recently. He's from East Tennessee uh, asking me if I was lost. (laughs) I assured him I wasn't uh, prior to recording the previous episode, but uh, recently sent me a note saying that he listened to the episode we just recorded two times already and is appreciative of what we've posted uh i know others send information in about um listening to the podcast and a lot of folks listen to it while they walk or listen to it while they're out in the garden or working on the bee equipment and as it gets to winter we're gonna have to do our part uh, at least here for the eastern United States or upper half of the United States as it gets cold to keep you occupied while you're out in your workshop uh, getting your stuff ready for the next season or how about you folks over on the other side of the world that are going into spring and very excited about your harvest so I'm excited for you and wish you a good beekeeping season so that being said um, time to roll it is uh, getting late here in New Jersey, and I'm a little under the weather today. haven't been feeling well, so I think I'm going to finish off my tea here and head on up to bed. So thanks for listening. We'll be back with another episode right around the corner. Our website, www.bkcorner.org, or you could jot us off an email, kevin at bkcorner.org. And again, please uh, post a note over to our Facebook page. Say hello. Tell us what you're up to and uh, 
give us a little note on iTunes if you could. Thanks, everyone, and have a good night, good evening, good morning, whatever time it is for you as you listen to this. And we'll catch you next time on the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast.